Due to the subject matter, we advise that children under the age of 12 or those of a sensitive nature should turn off now. Welcome to the Murder Tales podcast, where we look into the minds and crimes of murderers and serial killers. My name is Chris Britton, and for each episode, I'm joined by the creator of the Murder Tales series of books and criminal historian, H.N. Lloyd, or as we know him, Lloydy. Hello. How are we, Lloydy? All right, yeah, mudly now. <laughs> Good stuff. So we're getting to the end of the story of Temerlin's in Place. Um, in the last episode, we had a deep dive into Reg Christie himself and his reign of terror to the point where he was eventually arrested i would like to say by good good old coppering it was one of those kind of stereotypical serial killer arrests where he was arrested by chance yeah entirely by chance by a copper on the beat who just happened to be in the right place at the right time very similar to peter sutcliffe and uh donald nilson and now where we go to is where we started off uh, this part of the series where we said it's more about the fallout of this particular case had ramifications for crime and justice going forward yeah this was a seminal case in the criminal justice system this happened at a very peculiar period in the british criminal justice system when you had a very vocal and growing opposition to the death penalty yet certain powerful people in the government feared that if the death penalty wasn't in place people would go out and they would start committing murder uh, and there wouldn't be a deterrent there to stop them They, they simply felt that a prison sentence no matter how long wouldn't deter people from committing serious crimes so Reg Christie suddenly becomes a pawn to the establishment. They desperately needed Timothy Evans to remain a murderer. Now, at first, Christie wasn't really playing ball. Christie knew that his best chance of staying alive was to try and prove he was as mad as a March hare. Back then, the criminal justice system didn't recognise the nuances of mental health and mental health difficulties. They were obsessed with what they used to call the McNaughton rules. Now, this was an incredibly crass set of rules that the criminal justice system used to decide whether somebody was mentally competent or not. There were two rules. One was, did you know what you were doing? And the second part of it, did you know what you were doing was wrong? If you answered yes to any of them, then you couldn't be seen as having a mental illness under the British legal system laws. Is that it? That was it. That, that, that's so, like, that was like Rick Grimes' initiation in The Walking Dead. Have you shot anyone and how many people have you shot? <laughs> yeah, so that, 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 that was it. 
effectively, you would be assessed by three psychiatrists, usually uh, for the defence and for the prosecution. They would ask you various questions and they would assess whether they believed you fell under the remit of either of those two things. And if they felt that the, you did know what you were doing and you did know it was wrong or either one of them, then you, you weren't mentally ill. Obviously, in this case, we do have somebody who has got a history of mental illness. Exactly. And as he once crassly said to the prison padre during this period of, of his life, Christie basically said that he was going to admit to as many murders as he could because the more the merrier. It would make him look even more deranged and it would, would help kind of shore up his argument that he was mentally ill and shouldn't be executed. But we've said this all the way along. There's an argument there that you will, if you are going to be a psychopathic killer or a serial killer, there is something seriously mentally wrong. What differentiates somebody who's suffering from mental illness to somebody who would be determined as being somehow evil? Nobody is ever evil. Evil is a term that is used lazily by usually members of the press simply because they don't want to understand that anybody in the right set of circumstances can commit the most heinous of crimes. Yeah, it's that kind of thing where uh, if something major happens, that a simple solution or simple explanation won't be believed. Well, things sometimes are, are, are too complex for the press and the public to want to understand. So, for example, say a child commits a murder. Usually the thing that the press does is it says, why is this child evil? It doesn't want to understand why that child might have committed that crime, because God forbid we might find that society has failed that child or that person. And then we have to take a bigger, longer, harder look at certain deep rooted problems in society. So it's easier just to scapegoat that person by saying that they're evil. Or the other way is that whether they were influenced is to blame something simple in society. So obviously we grew up in the 90s, so we were aware of the term video nasties. Yes, when lots and lots of films were arbitrarily banned simply because it was worried that it might warp minds. Many of these films have now been released and that they, they haven't had any adverse effect at all on, on, on anyone, as far as I'm aware. There is not much evidence at all to show that exposure to such films can have an adverse effect on, on, on mental health. So where we're at with Christy then, obviously he's being assessed by three psychologists. Where does he fit in here? Because his actions would suggest that he would be deemed as being mentally ill and as the fact that he had spent some time under psychiatric care well when christy was assessed by the psychiatrists they quite quickly determined that he did not pass the mcnaughton rules that he quite clearly knew what he was doing that there was pre-planning in what he was doing and that he knew it was wrong and that he'd taken steps to cover up his crimes so therefore they decided this man doesn't cross that threshold, therefore he is fit to stand trial and was found guilty of his crimes and was sentenced to death. It was a very different criminal justice system back then. Now we would take into account the more nuances of mental health and mental health disorders and we would be able to no doubt diagnose Reg Christie of having any number of mental health illnesses which 
might be a deciding feature in saying that this man isn't fit to plead and his being confined to a secure hospital. Yeah, and then that then somebody would be seen as being mentally ill, which then would open the question of execution. Do you execute somebody who's ill? Exactly. That's another reason why I think they had such a, a, a facile test back then because they wanted to make it as easy as they could to execute people and not to really take into consideration the complexities of mental health that could complicate what was a very straightforward and very quick criminal justice system. I think we've discussed in earlier episode the fact that when somebody was found guilty of murder, they would be executed within three Sundays. It was very, very quick. So Christie stood trial for one murder and the prosecution picked the easiest one it was to prove that Christie was lying. So they they tried him for the murder of his wife, Ethel, because they could prove his story was nonsense, that there was no phenobarbital in their system, that he hadn't had sexual intercourse with her like he had the other victims, that it was a pure murder of convenience really he, he he suspected that his crimes would no doubt become public sooner rather than later and he wanted to to get out of there no strings attached so he's put on trial for Ethel's murder and he's found guilty he is then sentenced to be executed however things weren't as simple as that because you had the shadow of timothy evans still looming large over this case And I think now we should take a break. And when we come back, we'll discuss how Christie became a further pawn for the state to make sure the hanging remained the punishment for murder. Okay, let's take a break. Hi, and welcome back. Where we're at now, Christie's just been sentenced to death. For me, this obviously would open questions over the murders that Timothy Evans was executed for. This point were questions starting to be asked over his original testimony. Questions were asked straight away. And it led to the Home Secretary, Sir David Maxwell Fife, rather stupidly having to make a public statement where he said, uh, and this is a direct quote, There is no practical possibility of being a miscarriage of justice in this country. And furthermore, anyone who thinks there is, is moving in the realm of complete fantasy. So straight away, the government was setting out their stall that, no, we we hang that man quite correctly. And they needed Christie to back them up on this. The idea of not having any miscarriages of justice does not take into consideration that you're dealing with people. Exactly. And Christie suddenly started not really to play ball because before his trial, he was holding his hands up to any murder that that, that he was accused of. Now, all of a sudden, he started to deny that he'd killed anyone. And he started to say things like, I must accept that I did the murders, but I'm not convinced that I did. So that allowed the government to say, aha, there's an element of doubt still here. And if there's an element of doubt, that still has the kind of wiggle room to say that Evans still could have been the murderer. Why don't you just go full hog and just say, God made me do it? 
that's, well, that's that's that kind of defence. And eventually, the government appointed a, a, a Queen's Counsel called John Scott Henderson to look into the matter. He did a very very cursory examination of the facts, and he came back and said, "Now I've looked into this. I've looked at the evidence. I've, I've spoken to Reg Christie, and." Timothy Evans quite clearly murdered his wife and daughter, and he was quite rightly hanged. And for for many, many years, that were the official stance was. And not long after the inquiry concluded, Christie was summarily hung. Now, was this within the time period that they hung Timothy Evans, or, or was because of the inquiry they took more time? No, it was still happened within three weeks. Christie was found guilty. Questions were asked about uh, Timothy Evans's uh, guilt or innocence. Government held up a very quick inquiry. That was concluded within a fortnight. They concluded that Timothy Evans had been guilty all along and they hung Christie. It amazes me how quickly they were able to do an inquiry and the complexity of the actual case. Uh, this is where we go back to the first episode when I said about the appeals process with Timothy Evans. The fact done so quickly, to me, that smells of a rush job and obviously not going into the details in any depth. And it wasn't until 1961 that really the utter shambles of the original inquiry started to become clear. And that was when Ludwig Kennedy published his book, Ten Rillington Place. And unlike the, the investigators of the original inquiry, he actually went back and tracked down original witnesses. And two of the most important witnesses were the workmen who had been carrying out work on Rillington Place around about the same time that Beryl and Geraldine were murdered. Now, they worked for a company called Larters. Ludwig Kennedy tracked them down and they said categorically that Timothy Evans had already left for Merthyr Tidville by the time they started the work. And they could say for certain that the bodies had not been in the outhouse because they had been doing work in that building and they would have easily come across them. So that can lead to only one conclusion. It was Christie who put the bodies in the outhouse where they were discovered. Of course, with Timothy being in Murphy Tedville, it, it couldn't be anybody else. So it had to be. Him. It had to be Reg Christie who had moved those bodies and if red christie had moved those bodies that means he was more complicit in those murders than he had always made out but however that doesn't completely exonerate him it doesn't completely exonerate timothy evans however i think with anything like this you have to go with occam's razor what is the what is the simplest answer here is the simplest answer that, that we had two murderers living in the same building, one of whom was one of post-war Britain's worst serial killer. And the other man just happened to murder his wife and his daughter and then blame that man who turned out to be the, a serial killer or is it more logical to say it was probably the serial killer who murdered the woman and child and then was happy for his neighbour to take the blame? And genuinely, this is 
where it's frustrating looking back at this case, knowing how obvious the evidence was, it doesn't take a genius to put to join the dots to the fact that Timothy Evans was found guilty of murdering his wife and child. Mm-hmm. In 1966, there was a Labour government and we had the most progressive Home Secretary there's, there's ever been, a man called Roy Jenkins. He was the man who w- would get rid of uh, capital punishments. He, again, had a look at all of the facts and he concluded that Timothy Evans was innocent. He, he gave Timothy Evans a full and free pardon and his body was exhumed and it was moved to, to, to a consecrated cemetery. However, that hasn't stopped other people since then coming forward and uh, and trying to say that Timothy Evans was still guilty. There's been two books in, in modern times that have, that have tried to say that. Those two books have been largely disregarded by anyone who's ever really investigated the case in any great detail. Yeah, well, people do write books based upon the opposite opinion because they can sell books. Mm-hmm. Doesn't and mean what, it's right. What, what I would always say with, with this case, if you were on a jury now and you had all of the facts in front of you even the facts the jury back then didn't have the facts about Christie being a murderer the fact that he was a sex murderer the fact that there was evidence that uh, Beryl had been raped and Timothy Evans was on trial for those two murders would you be able to convict him beyond all reasonable doubt I think they lazily went on the back of the fact that they had a confession, whether it was coerced or not. And I think what they probably thought of is, well, he's confessed to the crime. And simplicity, so the, the fact that the simple nature, to some people, that's an open and shut case. And that's the thing. Timothy Evans, unfortunately, ruined any chance he had of getting a fur trial. When he stepped into that police station in Merthyr Tidville, and he used the words, I've done away with my wife. The second he used those words, he was putting a noose around his neck that would be very difficult to remove. So in a way, you can't blame the jury for finding him guilty when, when they originally did so. However, now that we know the full facts and who his neighbour was and the man he then went on to accuse of the murder. I think we should seriously. I, I, I think it's case closed now. I think I think we can say with certainty that Christie murdered Geraldine and Beryl. From this, we know this is one of those pinnacle cases in abolition of the death penalty. Mm-hmm. How is this used as evidence to have the death penalty abolished? So Roy Jenkins was instrumental in wanting the death penalty abolished. And you had several cases that had become quite high profile, kind of core celebrities, as they called. One was um, the last woman to be hung, who had been hung in a very strange set of circumstances. Ruth Ellis, although it was undeniable that she committed the murder, there were certain sets of circumstances that, that made it unpalatable in the fact that she had been the victim of domestic abuse, that her partner had abused her so badly she'd miscarried, and the fact that she had basically been counselled into murdering her lover by a man called Desmond Cousins, who gave her the gun and drove her to the scene. And yet 
he wasn't touched by the criminal justice system. So that had left a, a very unpalatable taste in a lot of people's mouths. We then had the case of the A6 murderer, a man called James Hanratty. Now, at the time, this was being seen as a, a massive miscarriage of justice. What had effectively happened in this case, uh, a courting couple were hijacked by a masked man who went on to rape the woman in the car and then shoot both the man and the woman. The man died. The woman was paralysed for life. James Hanratty was the second suspect the police went after. And he was he was found guilty of the crime and he was executed. However, witnesses came forward to say that he couldn't have committed the murder because rather than being in the London area where the crimes happened or just outside of London, he had actually been in the in the North Wales town of Rill at the time. And John Lennon and people like that got behind that particular case. Paul Foote, the investigative journalist, he got behind it. And there was a lot of people saying this is another innocent man that, that the state has murdered. Ironically, in 2002, DNA evidence was used and it was proved beyond any doubt whatsoever that Hanratty had been the killer in that case. But at the time, it was being used as a stick to beat the establishment with. And a new government had come in. It wanted to be as transformative as the first Labour government, which had brought in the NHS and the welfare state. And one of the one of the key things they wanted to do to show that they were a transformative government, to show that they were listening to a disaffected public, was to abolish the death penalty. And I suppose you, if you're dealing with the pub, public opinion, because you hear it now, you, you hear people using the phrase, bring back the death penalty. And there is a movement to actually bring it back for certain cases, particularly um, paedophiles who kill. How did the government win the public over of that opinion? At the time, this this was the 60s, there was a sea change in society. And also you had a government that, that was extremely confident in what they were doing. Roy Jenkins, the Home Secretary, was a man who wasn't afraid to say to the public, I know more than you, I know better than you. And you might not like me doing this, but I'm doing this in your best interests. And that was the approach he took to abolishing hanging. Now, for many years, hanging, had its teeth were being removed. So changes had been made over years so that hanging wasn't just used carte blanche for murder anymore. It could only be used if you were committing a robbery and a murder occurred and circumstances like that. So it wasn't the carte blanche approach to murder it had once been. And Roy Jenkins effectively said to the to the government, this is doing no one any favours. It's a barbaric system. I'm more enlightened than you. I'm getting rid of it. And if you don't like it, you can lump it. So obviously the Labour had, had a large majority at the time. They were easily able to push this legislation through and then it it had no problems getting through the House of Lords because again a lot of the House of Lords weren't in favour of the death penalty either and it it got through no problems and and that's where we are today. When you look at this in hindsight you can see that this particular deterrent didn't change the crime statistics and unfortunately innocent people did die unnecessarily. Although the prison system and the justice system at the moment is struggling so much there has been massive improvements since the day that the death penalty was abolished, although it doesn't they haven't necessarily solved the sources of the crimes. There is no evidence whatsoever 
that hanging or, or capital punishment acts as a deterrent. In fact, murder rates were slightly higher when we had capital punishment. Murder rates have actually, in real terms, gone down since we abolished. So that argument is, is a dead duck. The, the only reasons to want to bring back hanging is a rather, well, it's, it's, it's certain quarters that want to be seen as being tough on crime and it, an almost brutalistic element. Yeah. It's strongman politics. That's what it's for. Mm. Study after study and statistics have all proven that capital punishment doesn't act as a deterrent. There's been studies of late, I believe uh, Professor David Wilson has, has completed one recently, where he found that a lot of people have committed crimes simply because they didn't think they were, were going to get caught. Other people have committed crimes for a myriad of complex social economic reasons, which have nothing to do with, with what the deterrent might have been. I don't think the dog whistle politics we've got at the moment, and both sides of the political spectrum are guilty of this at the present time. We've got a Home Secretary who is saying all manner of what I consider to be loony things but about how to treat criminals. And we've got an opposition who are putting out rancid adverts saying that the Prime Minister effectively is turning a blind eye to serious crimes. You know, it doesn't help. And I think given the fact that quite clearly capital punishment doesn't act as a deterrent. We need to think long and hard before we even consider having a serious discussion about bringing it back into the criminal justice system. Okay, so I I think that's a perfect place to wrap things up on this. Lloydie, any other thoughts? No, other than if you do want to know any more about this case, it is an extremely complex case. There's a lot more about this case and what we've been able to go into in these three episodes so there are a lot of books available on the subject i've written about it twice in murder tales the hangman's tales and uh the mummy's boys but you don't have to just have to read my books there are other books available but you want to plug your own book that's fine that's okay we can accept <laughs> that it's just, it, it, this is based upon your books you can do that um yeah so you, they're available on amazon yep paperback ebook some are available in hardback now Oh, and also, if you're lucky enough to subscribe to Kindle Unlimited, you can read my books absolutely free. Okay, so it just leaves me to say, if you have any questions, concerns, or any comments, and you want to give us any feedback, you can get in contact with us by going to at Murder Tales Pod, or you can get in contact directly with Lloydie by going to at Lloyd one And to make sure that you don't miss our next episode of the Murder Tales podcast, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, just click subscribe. And while you're there, leave us a nice little comment as well. And if you want to share the pod, it's available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or as I said, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Lloydie, thank you very much. Just leaves me to say, I've been Chris Britton, and he's been H.N. Lloyd. Evening all.
If you enjoyed the show, please go onto iTunes and leave us a lovely five-star review. And even better, click on that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Murder Tales podcast is based around the criminal history books by H.N. Lloyd. If you'd like to get your hands onto them, you can click on the Amazon link on our Twitter page. This show was presented, edited, and produced by Chris Britton. It was created, written, and co-presented by the author H.N. Lloyd. Our theme was New World Order by Neil Roberts Music. The Mother Tales podcast is part of the P-Pod Casting Network. You can check out our other shows, such as the Pub Politics podcast, or even the Tragical History Tour. All you have to do is go and search on your favourite podcast provider.